One of the things that the book forced me to do, just in like in beginning this whole thing and talking about what the book was about, the book was about tribalism, but it forced me to completely uh, uh, relinquish all of the stigma of that word. Like he would not let go. He was unapologetic in using he in using the idea of tribalism in a positive way. Right. Looking at like how we evolved and how we survived in groups, and and that group think is a necessity. You know, it's a necessity, which yep. is like in in modern culture, that's just not how we think. We don't think it's a necessity. Right. Um, which means we're blind to how we actually work. <laughs> yeah, we're blind to how we actually work. That I mean, we can we can talk about. I have some notes on uh, you know different quotes about tribalism that that caught me. Um, but uh, maybe we'll just. I found the military uh, part of what he started talking about when he referred to the troops who were stationed in Italy and they had a base in Italy. But then they were going to um, a Middle Eastern country to fight, and then they would not want to go home to Italy, which sounds so weird because Italy is like a destination spot. And their base, right. if you look it up, is pretty schwank. But they would want the camaraderie of not only their team, their platoon, down in the Middle East, but they saw the lifestyle in the Middle East. They wanted to go back to that part of the world where they weren't forced to live in isolation on a base. They wanted to go back to that part of the world where they were able to like interact with natives that they were helping. And the natives responded with tribalism, with like camaraderie, with community as well. I found that very interesting that, you know, soldiers who already have a lot more community than like the average American, because they have, you know, they have veterans, they have, their squad they have their you know fellow military officers that they can connect with but and the cause the cause that they all fight for but um i was thinking in my head because actually jordan peterson and joe rogan have recently talked about how tribalism in america the negative way sure against like you know i'm a leftist or i'm a rightist i'm conservative or i'm liberal um, can be a bad thing. And then we, we isolate our the segments of our real tribe with these like distinct tribes that have different variables to be a good juxtaposition. Like we have the military people wanting to go live with, you know, Afghan people who have nothing, you know, nomadic shepherds, and then we can't even stand to live with people in the modern world just because they have a different view of ours. The distinction of tribes creating tribes for the wrong reasons is very interesting to me. I think it's interesting you, you bring up those two different conceptions of tribe, right? Like, I don't remember the name or the study, but I, I've heard that uh, human beings are good in groups of up to around 100 people maximum. 60 to 100. Like, like there's particular group sizes that invite certain dynamics, and your immediate group, like more than 100 faces, you're kind of getting lost. It doesn't, you know. So when people think in a tribal sense about like, oh, I'm a Democrat or, oh, I'm a Republican, you don't know the vast majority of those people. There's no relationship That's there. It's just like we call it tribalism, but it's, it's a kind of um, 
warfare mentality based on like a word that you ascribe to yourself, but you don't really know those people. Concepts. Like there's there's tribes around concepts. And you're getting the feelings that you want to get based on the how the concept makes you feel. Yeah. And you're completely dismissing people. Right. But it's, it's um, like we use the word tribalism in those two different senses. But like if somebody is a Democrat and I'm registered Democrat, I can't show up at their house and expect to be fed. That's not a tribe. <laughs> you know. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like the... Um... Uh, the positive, uh, yeah, he, he focused on the positive, but yeah, I was really worried about the negative side of tribalism because it's normally used as a negative term. Yeah. And uh, I like how we're defining the negative side as conceptual tri tribalism, uh, being a Democrat, being a Republican. Um, whereas, like, I look back to my times in Boy Scouts and found that to be really valuable. I look back to my time in a fraternity, and that was a tribe that was very valuable. And, um, however, uh, it, to be absolutely frank, uh, when I look at my time as a Christian, that's more confusing. Right. Like, mm. Or my time as a university student, that's more confusing uh, because the university is a tribe, and it's a huge tribe. Uh, the network of, of academics is a huge tribe, but it's conceptual. They're bonded together by this uh, concept of academia. And then we have the church, and that's a huge tribe uh, bonded together by this concept of church. And um, it's actually a lot more confusing, and you can find yourself very isolated in both cases. Whereas in the case of a fraternity or a Boy Scout troop, uh, you've got people looking out for you. You've got people building you up, specifically building you up um, in those cases. I feel like the ideal church would be what what you felt in the fraternity and in the Boy Scouts, like the the body of Christ, you know, uh, in a perfect world is exactly that hopefully that you would have someone who has your back someone who supports you someone who's looking out for you and I, I think it's it's an unfortunate commentary that we can't find the same camaraderie that we would in, in some of those other groups in the place where you know really biblically it should be found the most there was, there's a quote here that, that reminded me of so it's like uh, he's talking about self-determination theory it says self-determination theory, which holds that human beings need three basic things in order to be content. They need to feel competent at what they do. They need to feel authentic in their lives, and they need to feel connected to others. It seems like it seems like um, what can happen in a church is that you might only get two of the three, you know, or one of the three. Where, where, where it's supposed to be something more, and they might advertise it as something more, but you don't, you you can't really have that coming of age. You can't really uh, meet the world in a forthright way as a group because there's a stunting along one of those lines. I mean, those are pretty pretty powerful trio they need to feel competent at what they do i mean in a tribe that's centered around worldview 
competence would be would be along the lines of the things that you're learning and teaching being coherent and working in real time you you knowing that the things that you're teaching the things that you and you're taught the things that you love are uh, co they're correlating with real you know with reality so that that can go sideways <laughs> and then they need to feel authentic in their lives that that can also go sideways <laughs> I feel like that's huge right now though that the cry for authenticity is yeah and then you connect with people on the basis of something that that you you begin to question is as to its authenticity. It's like the whole thing can collapse. Like if you if you're ideologically based and your competence, your what was the second one? Competent, it's, feeling authentic, and feeling connected to others. Competence, authenticity, and connection. Right. Yeah. Well, if the authenticity starts to be questioned, then your competence is also questionable because you don't know if you believe it. And then you can't relate to others honestly and openly because the thing that you're the the thing that you're using to discuss life is not so maybe like what so the whole thing yeah so maybe like the 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 there's a co cohesive nature to healthy tribalism right especially in modern in the modern world where things are hyper intellectualized even if we're even if you're anti intellectual in the modern age you're still God knows how much more intellectual than we were six, seven hundred years ago as a commoner, you know, maybe, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> just in terms of how much information you have to process. Sure. Absolutely. So, but you could say like what Sam said, what is, what is the negative and what is negative tribalism? And it might be a perversion of one of those three, you know, fundamental needs as a human being. It's like you might feel a connection to others in a group, like say you're in some strange cult in California or something, right? And you, and you find this incredible connection with everyone. And within the group, you feel like you have competence, you know, your individual, you know, your individual uh, abilities are being, are useful in the group. You know, you're good at cooking or, uh, you know, like a young guy that's good at oration, like it's it's easy to step into that role in one of those sideways tribes, right? But then that authentic the authenticity isn't there because you go out into the real world, and and there's a disconnect, right? Because maybe that was the first way I put it was like if you're if it's not if you're not really competent in your worldview because like it doesn't it doesn't integrate well, it it's not. Um, well balanced right you know? and in society at large like you seem to be lacking in how you've processed your worldview like then you like you might have part of the tribe tribal necessity but you don't have all of it and that maybe can turn you inward back inward so you redefine authenticity you redefine competence along the lines of the group and then you're really just hinging everything off of you know the connection to others and that being a small group that's all you know, kind of stuck together. Right. Are you saying that competence has to be something very concrete? So, like, a, a group that is centered around a, an abstract ideal, like, that would be something very, very hard to form a tribe around. I would say either, one, either authenticity or competence gets, you know, gets uh, sacrificed. 
Like, it depends on how you play it. I'd have to think about that a little bit. Don't you think it's a so like authentic? Sorry, competence is kind of a social function. Like, like you might have a competent shaman, right? He knows how to give people the mescaline or whatever and sit with them and help them sort themselves out. And that's not based on any objectively materially useful thing. I mean, mm. a communist would, you know, a, a communist materialist type would just say, well, that's pointless. Yeah. But it's not really pointless. It's an important social function. It helps people, like, orient themselves to the world. So the shaman can have a decent self-image about himself if he's sane. Um, you know, once once people enter into a total drugged-out state, that's... You're talking about a different kind of being, right? But assuming a shaman has a self-image like a normal person would, being able to perform a function where you're helping people orient themselves to the world around them can make you feel good. Mm. Even if you're not, like, making good arrows. I'm not so sure <laughs> that the draw to these groups is necessarily logical as much as it is that longing for your ancient family you know that i mean that's the what i got from the book was this longing for my ancient family yeah we're kind of on a sidebar no no i'm just i'm just thinking about the specific example that like what what could draw you to let's say a cult or you know on the positive side of the spectrum like a you know a healthy church it isn't usually the the ideological framework i mean historically it was with all the creeds and the agreements and things like that but but these days, I mean, when I talk to young people, it's usually like they're just looking for a, a tribe. They're just looking. Mm. Yeah. They have that longing for that solidarity, that yeah. ancient family. And, and it's almost like sometimes you get drawn into the tribe just because of that basic need for community. Yeah. And then it starts to get unpacked what's actually, yeah. you know, said and taught and thought of in the community. And you're like, holy smokes, like this isn't like the Boy Scouts. This is like a different situation, you know? So I feel like what I felt in the book was this this gnawing sense of like, man, that that ancient family, that tribe surviving in the wilderness together, going to war together, sharing resources with each other, which was, a, to me, a, a very important point in the book that in the West, you know, we've become so materialistic. I think he says at one point, I have the quote somewhere, but like someone who's wealthy could go his whole life without needing to, you know, um, share his resources or receive any resources from any other person. Like he could just, he could be completely autonomous and isolated from the tribe. You have the quote, Dave. Oh, Dave, I got the quote. So, uh, the mechanism seems simple. Poor people are forced to share their time and resources more than wealthy people are. And as a result, they live in closer communities, interreliant poverty, comes with its own stresses and certainly isn't the American ideal, but it's much closer to our evolutionary heritage than affluence. A wealthy person who has never had to rely on the help and resources from his community is leading a privileged life that falls way outside more than a million years of human experience. Financial independence can lead to isolation, and isolation can put people at a greatly increased risk of depression and suicide. And I just thought, wow, I mean, that's like, there's something to that, that if I don't need to share resources, if I don't need anyone else in my life and I'm completely autonomous and I get isolated like that, you know, it's it's not a healthy place to be. Mm. That, uh, that kind of integrates, though, doesn't it? Like talking about competence in your position as like a social uh, function. Like I was I've been watching this um, YouTube channel, uh, Essential Craftsman. The guy's mm. building a, um, a spec house and like showing people how that's mm. done. One of the things he said was, uh, as a contractor, if you're going into business with somebody, 
if you don't think that you could be friends with a person, you probably shouldn't be striking deals with them. Interesting. Like, like there's a relational basis of trust on which you should be building your commercial uh, interests as a small business person. That's not how big business works at all. I mean, that, that's not how the structure of modern society runs. But, like, in a tribe, things are integrated. Like, the person who, you know, makes the weapons and the person who cooks the food and the person who runs the religion, they all know each other and, and they're together and, and it's like a functioning organic community, right? But in modern american culture at least you have this idea like oh work is separate i go to work i go home they're different i'm right. supposed to drop my work stresses at the door and be smiley and happy and raise my kids and you know not unload on my wife and it's like there's a total disconnect like i i drive home on the commute you know give a few people the finger come home <laughs> i'm happy clean well cut you know everything's great and that's just not how life is works didn't mark say it was alienation from your labor isn't that how he said it? Uh, that, that, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I mean, is it? do you think in a tribe the they're not um, hyper-categorical? Like the way you're talking about compartmentalizing work and family life and recreational activities. Like I go golfing, and that's a separate category, you know, to, yeah. to let off some steam. Like do you think in a tribe that the lines are blurred to the point where it's all kind of one big organic group yeah, and, and, and of course also, that can go south there's but. like there's meaning and there's responsibility too like if you make a crappy arrow because say you've got a problem with your leg you're the dude who sits over by a campfire you know scraping arrow sticks <laughs> right. and, and straightening them because you can't go hunt right. well the food the your community might not have food if you don't make your arrows straight so you do your job right because right, you right. care about it because other people depend on you and the stakes for success are so high in that regard that a little thing like whittling well makes you the man right. right as opposed to just like ah oh, who cares he knows how to uh, make a couple shavings right, right. You yeah know. or like i hate my job so much i just gotta buy time until my eight hours is up because right. there's no accountability for a lack of performance mm. yeah this quote actually got me i, I was i was thinking uh, in effect humans have dragged a body with a long hominid history into an overfed, malnourished, sedentary, sunlight-deficient, sleep-deprived, competitive, inequitable, and socially isolating environment with dire consequences. That's beautiful. <laughs> it got me thinking about, I, I'm, you know, we don't have to go into this too deep, but it caught me thinking about the um, being evolutionarily, like like being dropped out of this evolutionary process as inept, you know, like in being isolated and independent. Like I, well, like what is a man? Like we can talk about what higher man is, but like a man is at least on a continuum with the, with the, with the animal world. And, uh, and his instincts, like man's instincts are, we're, we're wrestling with our instincts, you know, and, what this whole book is about is why why we're why there's a feeling of disorder in modern life. It's because there were instincts that made us apt, and and the way that the way that our our greater tribe has has developed is such that it's not in keeping with those instincts, or at least not all of them. So like. 
the traits that made you successful back in the day are not being utilized. Right. And it might actually, I thought about like isolation being like there being a pull because this book can be kind of, um, I love this book, but it can be a little bit kumbaya. Like Andrew talked about, like the idea of the brotherhood of pain. Like it can be, mm, you can almost like wish for, you can wish for uh, calamity, calamity yeah. because of the, because of the dissociative nature of society and that's not healthy <laughs> right to right wish it's for not it's, it's not, not but i i feel it in me like i i like i love big snowstorms because the neighborhood is lock is on lock and you're you're at least once you're at least one notch closer to the things that make you useful not as an animal, I guess. Yeah. As an animal, like what made you a successful animal right. is coming to the surface during a giant snowstorm where vehicles can't come down the street. You know, like you're, you're thinking about, go ahead, Kyle. Maybe not animal is the right way to say it, but like where he has the quote in the book about the difference between survival in a tribe and the difference between thriving as a tribe. I was looking up the quote that goes along with that where he says, how do you become an adult in a society that doesn't ask for sacrifice? How do you become huh. a man in a world that doesn't require courage? So it's not sick that we would we would wish for calamity or, or wish for the snowstorm or wish for you know everyone's basement to be flooded so you can go house to house helping everybody. Yeah. And it's not so much the usefulness for some people as much as the social contact too. So again, we're hitting those three points again. But it's it's what we do in the midst of it. We're not looking for another tsunami to hit, you know, America, but we're looking for that that camaraderie. And um, Jordan Peterson was talking with Camille, the the professor. Camille Paglia. Yeah, he was talking to her, and she said, you know, of mankind in general, you know, when she was having to defend what a real feminist would think about men. She said, men are the secret bulwark, the invisible army against chaos. Because when flash floods happen, men are just out there in trucks, restoring power, saving people, whipping out boats to go rescue people from the second story of a house underwater. Like men, as as a tribe, they get together and they fix the things that are wrong when, when calamities happen. Just tying into what you were saying there. That that dovetails good. I was actually thinking like the that c- almost completes the thought is that I essentially I feel like the isolation brings you to like proper independence. Like feeling isolated from our old tribal self or like that bridge between the animal instinct and modern man. Like the feeling of isolation can turn into independence and the right kind of independence. Like it might take a little bit to grow, but like that desire to be out and to survive on your own or to be, to be the able man that on his own can change a situation. Like, yeah, it's a far cry from like the tight knit tribe and how our, how our um, social structure was based on like cooperation but like it essentially readies you for that kind of cooperation on the tail end, like that you are you're making yourself more uh, you're essentially waiting for 
the uh, you're waiting for the opportunity to arise where that orientation comes back again. Right. And you've you have made yourself strong in the areas that you've become weak over the. You know, I mean, speaking I'm speaking abstractly, but a man is becoming strong in the areas where he's become weak over the course of 30 centuries or something like that. You know. Well, one thing I'm wondering about uh, now that we're talking about this is um is it more to do what when the calamity hits uh and uh we see that there's less psychosis when a calamity hits uh than in normal modern life that was a great point in the book and yeah. however it is it does it have more to do with the um isolation or does it have more to do with the fact that when calamity hits you're dealing with basic needs. Well, you're the isolation, uh, sorry to butt in, but the isolation is when there's no calamity. You sense right. your isolation because you're alienated from the necessity of tribal, of like tribal cooperation. When the calamity comes, you're not isolated. So so what I'm saying is, is that there's plenty of people who go out and live in a cabin and they're perfectly happy. Mm. and And so it's, uh, however, when you're in a city and you're isolated and uh, like that's where the psychosis happens. Mm. Like, and so I'm not so sure if it's the isolation or uh, it it is more to do with the competence because uh, when you're in survival mode, it's easier to be competent. I wasn't glorifying isolation. I was saying that your isolation, you have to turn it into independence or competence. You can call it competence. Right, yeah. right. Uh, what, no, what, what I'm saying is, uh, is it once you're out of survival mode, mm. um, could it be uh, less about the social interaction uh, that happened when the calamity happened and more to do with the fact that you're out of survival mode and now you're trying to figure out how to be competent mm. now that you're out of survival mode. That was something I was thinking about when he was reading those those results from those studies was like, you don't have the luxury of that much introspection during a crisis. Yeah. You have to just meet the basic needs, get the city you know, back in order, wh however you want to say it. And I, I wonder if the reason that you know, those numbers of psychosis and mental illness are going down isn't necessarily because we all banded together, but it was because we didn't have time to, oh, to look at what's going on inside or, you know, whether that's our head or our heart. Uh, you know, we didn't have the luxury of of like caring about ourselves and our mental state because all we had to do was bail out the water or get the kids back in school or take care of the sick and the wounded. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. when he was saying that, I, I kept I kept reading that and thinking, yeah, but... I don't know if it's accurate to take those numbers around that time where people, you know, they're not on their game the way they would be or they wouldn't have uh, the time to have the healthy introspection, engage how they're doing and how their mental health is because they don't, they, you know, they have to spend their energy other other places. So I was wondering about that too, the um, the bit about mental illness going down in times of crises. The, the one about in London, they, they had less they had less people going to the asylums. Right. And they had less examples of psychosis during the Blitz. Yeah. Right. And um, there's like a couple things I was curious about with that. 
like do they have the time and resources to devote to care to people right. who are mentally ill? Like, like you know, is maybe it's just not getting the attention that it deserves because of it. And and the second was, isn't it the case with people who you know, I don't I don't know much about it at all, but I have heard things like people with trauma from war feel alienated in modern society and would rather go back to war, right? Like like people specifically with PTSD, sometimes people feel like they have a problem when they're back home and they feel okay and normal when they're out on the field. Is have I am I misreading that or is You're that... saying that that might be fudging the numbers that some people are going back because they're screwed up. You're not denying his point, but you're just saying maybe it's a balance to it. Right. Yeah. Because so, I, I remember there being, I wasn't one of these people, but I remember there being a number of people that were, they they had a love-hate relationship that leaned more towards the love, where they like they wanted to be in that environment, even though it was a toxic, combat is toxic. They, they wanted to be there because of that feeling of tribe. I mean, he right. hit it right on the head. And when they got home, they were like, they weren't PTSD victims, but they wanted to go back. Huh. But I, I would definitely say that your point's valid. Okay. Just, yeah. I would say it's probably, there's probably examples of both. As a former serviceman, could you speak to some of the points he made specifically about the military? Because I, especially when he's talking about like PTSD rates and some of the things that, uh, he was observing in his studies and when he was with them over overseas like did you find it was a fair and accurate reading of kind of how your experience in combat was i mean i had a pretty minor i mean hit like he was embedded in have any, any of you guys seen restrepo the movie that he did Mm-mm. yeah one restrepo is crazy like not many service members had that experience where they were holed up on the top of a mountain for six months or might even be more up on top of a mountain like a isolated little group getting attacked constantly by taliban like that's not the even combat even like grunts didn't have that experience so like my experience is more of like a policing effort like i saw combat but i mean his his examples are like sarajevo and world war ii i mean it's not even to be compared okay world war ii uh, you know, World War Two, World War One is like a different type. It's a different level of combat. It's hard to compare. So I I can't really. I mean, I do know that like there is a rallying around uh, the mission. Uh, there is a there's a solidarity that comes with difficulty. I definitely saw that. Definitely. But like I didn't get like the really extreme like London Blitz experience. Gotcha. Not even close. So. I just I didn't feel that I um, was qualified to comment on whether or not it was one way or the other because I've never seen battle. So I, that's why I was asking you. I mean, you've seen difficulty and you've seen, seen how difficulty. people people gather together around difficulty. That's I mean, he's yeah. right in that. He's right in that. But yeah. I mean, with his movie, specifically what they did on that mountaintop, their survival was directly linked to how in sync they were as a tribe. I mean, it wasn't just like, you know, got your six or like, like Dave said, a policing effort where you were dependent on the squad to make sure you're just rolling through a certain area. But there, they had to be so in tune with each other. And like all the small things could not become a big thing or, you know, survival was out the window 
like I definitely recommend everybody watch that movie because it makes you sick to your stomach. Is it more graphic than the book? Because I I had trouble with the book. It's it's got its issues. Restrepo. Oh, oh, you're no, talking about this book. This book, just the imagery of some of the it's, stuff he said. It's, I was like, it's on par with his other documentaries. Yeah, it's a good compliment to the book. It's it a, is. It's his tale of why he ended up reading. I mean, one of one of the pieces of why he ended up writing this book. Yeah, but it's it's a heck of a story. Yeah. yeah. Could we talk more about the whole like? So he he gives this positive light to tribalism that we've been discussing. Um. Can we talk more about the families inside of the tribe that he starts to go over in the book? I feel like it's interesting to me that he does bring up, you know, kids felt more secure back in the day when they slept with their parents. Oh, yeah, that was a good point. And, like, how there are these weird nuances and dynamics inside of family that really complete the tribal aspect. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I thought the point about the teddy bears was interesting. He was saying the monkeys uh, with the teddy bears. Uh, no, he was saying. Um, <clears throat> let me see here. I think this is the one. Yeah, he said um, Northern European societies, including America, are the only ones in history to make very young children sleep alone in such numbers. The isolation is thought to make many children bond intensely with their stuffed animals for reassurance. Only in Northern European societies do children go through the well-known developmental stage of bonding with stuffed animals. Elsewhere, children get their sense of safety from the adults sleeping near them. No, I mean, it, it. you know, it's it's funny in some ways, but in other ways, it's like, man, that's super interesting. You know, like a lot of times they'll say, oh, he won't go to bed without his, you know, fill in the blank name for the stuffed animal, you know, without his stuffy or without his fluffy or whatever. And it's like, you always think, oh, that's so cute. He like loves stuffed animals. But the thought of maybe like, that's the only way he survives the night was like, man, these poor kids, you know, but uh, you know, I'm not a parent, so I can't speak to it with authority, but yeah, especially, um, I have some kids and, uh, recently we've been traveling and, um, actually not just recently, but living in Missouri. Now we live in one room with our three kids and getting them to go to bed has been the easiest thing in the world. Because they know how close they are to That's us. That's interesting. It's very different than when we lived in a five-bedroom house in, in another state. And they would be always clamoring back to our room. Or they did have to have... For my boys, it's not so much stuffed animals as much as like... Titus wants his ninja stars under his pillow. Or Silas wants his PJ mask toys with him. There is that huge element of security. But I think it's also assurance. You know, like, I'm going to be okay. I've got this other thing to attach to. And I think it comes from the womb when, sure. you know, in, in early infant age when you're attached to your mom. Because they say, actually, um, my wife was saying that uh, a lot of infants don't recognize their mother as a separate entity until they're, like, six months old. Like, for the first six months of life, you kind of register your mom as part of your entity. Right, right. It's a key developmental step, right? Yeah, it is. It's a key developmental step. And then taking it a step further, this whole sleeping at night with a stuffed animal, I think is part of that evolving consciousness. You know, you used to think you wouldn't sleep with this other huge entity, and now they're not there. This is the yeah. one that I was thinking along these lines, this evolutionary development. Baby rhesus monkeys were separated from their mothers mm. and presented with the choice of two kinds of surrogates. Oh, that's a right. A cuddly mother made out of terry cloth or an uninviting mother made out of wire mesh 
The wire mesh mother, however, had a nipple that dispensed warm milk. The babies took their nourishment as quickly as possible and then rushed back to cling to the terry cloth mother, which had enough softness to provide the illusion of affection. Clearly, touch and closeness are vital to the health of baby primates, including humans. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Again, though, like what is now like we're not going unless there is a calamity that none of us would wish would happen we're not going to be back in the place where there's a necessity for for a pure tribal life sure so like now you got to adapt which means if the data says that your kids do better with stuffed animals right and they do better with being held a lot then you do that right like i mean there's been studies about babies being a lot more likely to die um, you know, uh, preemies being much more likely to die without human touch than with human touch. I, I don't have them in front of me, but I've heard oh. them before. I've never heard that. But at the same time, like, there's this idea of self-soothing, right, which he goes against here. But, like, I've seen it. I've seen it work. And I think it goes back to this idea that, like, the disparity between what we were and what we're becoming is obvious. And there's an isolation felt. But then there's also, like, there's an independence that can be an ach achieved in the face of that isolation. And yes, sometimes it can be cold and unnecessary and it can be detrimental, but there's also something to it that's helpful. Like it's maybe something that only a, a hardship like, like self-soothing could create in the kid. So it's like hardship creates society and it also creates fort fortitude in an individual. So like, let me read this. So how do you define self-soothing? I just want to make sure I'm tracking. Self-soothing is like you're letting the kid cry, okay. right? It's like mothers don't want to do that. So the kid's up at night crying, screaming and crying. And I don't know, I would assume most mothers want to go in to the kid, right? Makes sense. You want them to stop crying, number one. Number two, you feel for them. They're scared. They're whatever. But then there's like there's this idea of self-soothing. I'm not sure if there's numbers on it or whatnot, but I know that I've seen it work where if a kid is a kid is given he's given like a half an hour window to cry in, right? And then after that you're like, okay, I'll go in. That half an hour window, if it's repeated, will end up being to the kid's benefit that he'll sleep through the night. It's counterintuitive and in tribal society would never, ever, ever, ever have happened, right? But the kid has a certain fortitude. Some kids, I'm not sure, I'm not a doctor, I'm not going to say, but like I've seen it happen, anecdotal, that like some kids gain a fortitude from the difficulty of not having that tribal life. And it, I was going to read this because this seems like it would go along with it pretty good. Uh, ah. In many tribal societies, young men had to prove themselves by undergoing initiation rites that demonstrated their readiness for adulthood. In some tribes, such as the Mara of northern Australia, the tests were so brutal that initiates occasionally died. Those who, were ref those who refused or failed these tests weren't considered men and led their lives in a kind of gender twilight. Modern society obviously doesn't conduct initiation on its young, on its young men, but many boys still do their best to demonstrate their readiness for manhood in all kinds of clumsy and dangerous ways. 
They drive too fast, get into fights, haze each other, play sports, join fraternities, drink too much, and gamble with their lives in a million idiotic ways. Girls generally don't take those kinds of risks, and as a result, boys in modern society die by violence and accidents at many times the rate that girls do. These deaths can be thought of as one generation after another trying to run their own initiation rites because they live in a society that no longer does that for them. To the extent that boys are drawn to war, it may be less out of an interest in violence than a longing for the kind of maturity and respect that often comes with it. But I was thinking, he he puts a negative twist on it, and it is. I mean, there's there's horrible things to creating your own initiation rites, but it's back to this idea that, like, if what modern society is, is, and you're going to have an isolation, and you're going to feel inept, and you're going to feel like you lack utility, right? And you're going to feel like something's missing in terms of your development. Then you're going to kick back against it. And not all, but a a lot of self-created initiation rites are beneficial and they create fortitude. You got to do it wisely, right? And and, um, obviously it can be done with contempt for society. It can be done in misanthropic ways. You can end up becoming like some kind of an anarchist in achieving this what would be the equivalent of an initiation right back in the day but like i think that because you don't have organized initiation rights in this society like there's there's a self-soothing that happens to middle-aged men that you have to at least in a lot of cases that i've seen you have to encourage you have to encourage them it's like peterson's point in his book like don't trouble young kids when they're skateboarding it's like a, it's a great point that like these kids are trying to contest with the real world and find what they're made of and they're trying to improve and they're trying to deny gravity. So they're trying to de- deny physics. They're trying to deny them, deny culture, deny authority. And yes, it's got borders and they can become it can become uh, it can it can, ch- you know, can change their life if they test it too much. But I like the idea of kids getting dirty and figuring out, you know, like, and figuring out, like, how to make their lives hard, you know, I I dig that, I mean, I don't think it's always conscious, kids don't think, like, I want to make my life hard, but when they do, like, recognizing it as a, you know, self-created initiation, right, you know, as a throwback to tribal, tribal man, makes sense to me, anyways. Yeah, I mean, I, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, it's, uh, something like you should be careful about the idea that uh being in a healthy tribe means that you always have this social support group behind you and it's all you know there's always this uh this lifting up right um but i read it more like that feeling of tribe gives you a context like a meaning for the suffering like Mm. okay so i you know like Peterson talks about the hero's journey. So I go out into the wilderness, I undergo my initiations, I suffer, I learn, you know, I'll go move out and go to college and, you know, stuff my head full of things for four years and and suffer a little bit and probably party a bit too. Um, And then come back and then maybe I have something to give my community that I've gained. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's probably part of the tribal experience as well. Mm. You just can't see it all as this, like, comforting loving, happy, slap-on-the-back unicorn land, right? Yeah, initiations weren't. No. no. <laughs> I, I guess I've... And I'm not a dad, so I can't speak to this with 
the kind of experience that the dads around the table can, but I I struggled with this point, actually. I I felt that, and, and again, this is theoretical because I don't have a child, and I just want to make sure that's on record. So all the parents listening are going to be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, the idea that maybe you could... M- you could reinforce your acceptance of your child um, in a way that wouldn't make him feel like he has to prove himself to be something or to be accepted or to be a man or mature or whatever. Like I almost, at least my, again, theoretically, I'd like to, to pour enough into my son or daughter that they wouldn't feel they have much to prove. Like they would just. Would you? I, I, I mean, disagree. Like well, I know you do. I, I, I'm just saying, like, like if there's no expectations, you get the feeling that nothing you do matters. Like your decisions don't have consequences. Like you can love somebody and be angry at them at the same time. It's important that you can. You're talking about right? that they make that they know that they're approved of as as being your child. That's I think that's separate than making sure that they know that their life is going to suck if they don't make it something. Right. Well. No, no, I, I'm more talking that the idea that I'm in some way incomplete and would need to to do something to prove that I'm an adult. You or, are incomplete. It's called growth. You have to grow and you have to acquire things that will allow you to survive culture and life and right. gravity. And I'm not saying that there aren't creative ways we can e- expose our children to the harsh realities of life, but at the same time... I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I would it's like... not just the harsh realities. I'll just finish this. It's not just the harsh realities. It's knowing that it's like, it's like helping them become conscious of their finiteness in a way that gives them proper fear. And that inspires the kind of growth that they need to spark in themselves. Yeah. There's like the father that essentially his anger and his expectation for the, his kids to be a success acts as a surrogate and actually eclipses the kid's own self-starting initiation when it comes to making yourself more able to survive. Like if your dad is always on your case, like that maybe is the wrong direction too, but like he at least has to help you. To me, someone has to help you realize that if you don't make something out of yourself, you will fail and it will be epic. But but why why the juxtaposition you either one or the other why couldn't they be totally secure and explore the possibilities of their life from that place of security because security isn't well founded in that case i mean if you if you are factually destined to die and wither in society because you're maladapted your security isn't warranted it's an illusion and when it's ripped from you at age 35 when you've done nothing with yourself you're going to be in a lot of pain but i'm not i'm not talking about <laughs> i'm not talking about telling your child you know, don't do anything with your life. You're still, you know, just as accepted in mom, dad's eyes, even if that's true. Some people do that. A lot of people right. do that. But, and of course, you're going to encourage them to explore the world, but not from a deficit, from a place of fullness. But it is a deficit. Yeah. So so the thing is, is it's really tricky. I'm speaking in terms of I- identity. You're, but I it's think... really tricky that, you, you, that you're, tr- you're talking about making an incubation. You're talking about making a space for the kid to grow in. And that's a good point. Yeah, I would add to it, like, the quote that we have from the book, um, I think it's in the intro, where Robert Frost 
wrote that home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. But the word tribe is harder to define. And a good starting place might be that people feel compelled to share their food with you. Like when it comes to the kid, the immediate family is responsible regardless of whether they like you or whether you have adapted and gone through some isolation and and come out better and evolved or whether you haven't, you know, family takes you in and it comforts you as you come into the family, but it could also be annoying for your dad that you keep coming home after failed adventures, right? Right. But for the tribe, people feel compelled to share their food with you because you are also human and you also do have some benefit to the society. If they don't want to give you food, you're useless, but you've got a utility and that utility needs to grow over the span of your life. So I get what I get what you're saying, Matt. How come we can't divorce the two? But I do think the family, the immediate family of the child should be providing love and nurture, but the tribe provides nature and nature is an explicit word sometimes. Like you can't always control nature and nature sometimes you have to go against the grain of things. You have to be put in a place where you can't work work at something you have to actually struggle and your parents have to hands off let you figure out your way through that right. struggle it, it, but they can still love you with their left hand but like exploration and, and right. self discovery exploration and self discovery to me <laughs> his reaction the, was the not my is buzzing uh, <laughs> exploration and self discovery to me are I don't know. I, I I think you can encourage those things without making a kid run the gauntlet, so to speak. Like if I see a Native American ritual where a kid's getting tomahawked as he runs through the tribe, it's like, okay, like he's proving something to the tribe or to himself, but but why not like spare him of that? But couldn't couldn't you see it as like if if they survived, if all of tribal history was essentially proof in itself that that's how you survive as a hominid, right? Wouldn't you take that as a classroom? That that there is a positive aspect to the people that love you being the ones that introduce chaos. Like, not too much chaos. Perhaps. And again, part of fatherhood. L- like I not, said, not telling you I'm about not a chaos, dad. So. Not telling you about chaos, introducing you. Here's chaos. <laughs> like, it's a valuable thing. Like my dad used to say, he used to say, oh, really? Why don't I put your bed outside? I'll put a little lamp out there. And you can sleep outside tonight if that's how you want to act. Because what he was saying was, if you don't, uh, if you don't figure out how society works, you're going to be an outsider. It's his way of saying it to me. I mean, he would, he, I don't know if he actually would have done that. But it, it's actually, it's illusory. It's like, illusory? It's it. He was alluding to that fact that like, if you d- <laughs> illusorate, <laughs> what is uh, that word? No, no, <laughs> no. Anyways, he he was trying to tell me like, you might. This is well. I forget. I forget how I was gonna say. I, I'll add. I'll add a second um, funny story to that. What your dad told you because recently Titus got Titus got livid with us over the fact that he lost his Minecraft playing privileges. And he was telling my wife before I got home that he just absolutely hates her. And then he went so far. He was like, I hate you. I hate dad. I hate my brothers. 
And he started going down this list. I hate this room. I hate this bed. I wow. hate you guys. And he was like, I hate this family. I want out of the family. Mm. And then he was like, yeah, I'm leaving. And he started walking towards the front door. And my wife really didn't know how to react to it. But, like, he started, you know, heading out. Like, this is it. I hate you guys. I'm out of here. And then he turned back. And he was, like, struggling with what he even just said. Because then he turned back to Angelica. And he said, but I still need you to cook for me. Hmm. And I think it's what Dave just said. Like, we, like <laughs> children have to be introduced to chaos from their family. And then even as they go through it and, and walk through parts of it, we're there still holding their hands until they're not ours anymore. But there needs to be that introduction to chaos. Because later at some point in Titus's life, he will leave my house for the right reasons, hopefully, whatever they may be. He starts an adventure. He starts a family. He starts a career. He wants to travel. And he will have to cook his own food or find someone to do that for him. And that's part right. of the chaos is that no longer do your parents provide you food, shelter, the, those basic needs. So it has to be hand in hand. You love them until they can receive no more love from you. But you also provide them that space t- to process what does it look like without my parents. Sure. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for not training them so they can have useful skills to feed themselves or provide for themselves competency as we were speaking about earlier but it might it might be that i lack the experience necessary to understand the type of balance between exposing your child to chaos and also giving them the support they need to deal with it just because you're a parent doesn't mean that you're well equipped no no but i'm just saying (laughs) i i I don't have (laughs) i don't have a child you know the next door yeah, over yeah and i'm sure when i get yeah, there totally. my ideas will change and and they'll they'll adapt to the actual reality of what it's like to have a child yeah. i'm just speaking at it from like the idea of someone acting out of a deficit which i i feel in some ways i did not taking any shots at my parents but you know the idea of proving myself to 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 show them and to show myself that I was worth, you know, I was worth it, or I was it's not uh, confident. It. It's not worth it. it. It's it's apt. It's it's apt. It's able to survive. It's like Joey is scared of the dark right now, and I get, we're on this little training thing where I don't do it often. It's like once every couple months I'll be reminded that he doesn't want to go downstairs, and we'll say something like, "Joey, can you get my drink next to the drum set? The drum set's on the other side of the room here. It's deep into the." basement for a kid right right he'll say no i'll say will you go to the bottom of the stairs and he'll say no i'll say will you go to the top of this will you go halfway down the stairs if you leave the door open like i mean he's way past that now but this is how it was at the beginning and what it was was me introducing him to chaos like telling him like you can go downstairs like you're gonna have to earn the feeling of being uh of being in control of the situation and you the only way to earn it is by trying it out and and that's something of an initiation right it's like it's like you need to learn you need to find out how finite you are and how crazy life is and and you got to do it soon because you're coming of age so can you clarify for me perhaps i misunderstood so the, when you're speaking of an initiation right it is to demonstrate competence it is not to determine valuable of not valuable not to determine value or worth or even a sense of belonging to the tribe yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. The, this question is 
uh, well documented in the education research, like the question of how to raise kids and uh, the question of like the the best outcomes happen when you have very high expectations, but also very high relationship. Mm. And so uh, and those are two separate things. You can have very high expectations with no relationship and that's not good. And then you can have high relationship with no expectations, and that's not good. Uh, the The best model in all the research is very high expectations and very high relationship. So, like in I w I would say in grade school it was very high relationship and low expectations for me. And then I went to college and it was very high expectations and no relationship. Would you say worth is defined differently in those two spheres? Because yeah. like when he's saying, I don't, when Matt, Matt, when you're saying right. worth, I'm thinking of two different ways that you could think of worth. Like people can be worth everything to their mother and worth nothing to, so, to society because they don't contend with society properly. So would you call that a failed case? Because uh, I wouldn't. Uh, well, I mean, if yeah, you, I would. If you, yeah, if you're a sociopath, because well, I didn't say sociopath. You said not useful to society. Yeah, That's worthless different. to society. Yeah, like if there's a giant machine that is society, and I don't find my place in it, or I can't help the machine, you know, uh, move forward. And... Not a machine. Think of it as the tribe. Think of it as the group that's trying to survive. Worth, like, think of his example, Younger's example. We got to close it in about five minutes, but Younger's examples are, he's talking about like the group. When you when you cheat the group, you become worthless to the group. When you take when you when you are a slack in the group, like if we're trying to if we need to hunt and we need to we need to kill five buffalo before winter drops next week, and you are deciding you want to sit with the girls around the fire while we go hunt you might be worth something to your mom you're worth very little to the group and and you can even be the other way you can be work worth negative and they might have to kill you which is something in order to survive they had that as part of the structure of tribal society that people got they got actually executed for being worthless i mean i understand these terms are really they're really uh, tonally there's a deficit when it comes to modern culture i get that but if you think of like what helps society survive is people that are well integrated and they understand their pl their place in the world, not their place in the machine, their place in a tribe within the world. It's like the tribes in the world, like the machine, if the, the machine's not just a machine, if it's if it's contending with the world that we're all in, you could think of it as society is like a big tribe, which I think is what he wants to say at the end of the book is like. We should all treat each other like we're that the other person's the last we would give our last food to the other person. It's a little bit kumbaya, but it's essentially how society would evolve forward is thinking of the other people around us as val as valuable enough to deserve the last of my food. And but and it's I a, agree with that. It's another layer though, because like at the same time, if that person is not seeing it the way I'm seeing it, if he's not treating everyone around him like they're deserving of the last of his food, then something breaks down and they are detrimental to the tribe. So they're not worth to the tribe what they could be. So worth to your mom, which is a great worth, and then worth to the tribe, they're two different things. They can, obviously your mom can help you grow, but, but I feel like you have, 
I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead. no, go ahead. I, that's that's it. That's no, I was just going to say, say I, I feel like, again, a, a well-rounded kid who's had, you know, just love and encouragement poured into him will be useful to the tribe. No. Not necessarily. No no. I think we have to remember, too, like, when we use this word tribe the way he does in a book, he's not talking about the current modern evolution of society. Like, there's still a lot of room for a dude who's loved and worthed by his mom, but, like, can't keep a job at McDonald's. There's room for him to exist. Yeah. Yeah. There's room. And, actually, it's because the tribe has fought enough wars, stored up enough food, created enough for processes. For now, there's room. For now. <laughs> Dave was waiting for the apocalypse. <laughs> but... There is room for him, and in the in what you know, you're having like a little bit of a conflict saying he's with Dave saying he's not worth it. But right now, there is room for those people, and there are other people trying to actively help those people figure out the balance to their worth in in the tribe at large. Modern. I guess I just wonder if the perceived failure of that human being to be a functional part of society is because people don't believe in him enough to be a functional you part could of be society. right and, and, and he, I've seen that in my yeah life. he talks 100%. about he talks about how tribal existence is it has altruism in it too yep right so like it, it is you know it's something to think about it's just that you have to understand that there's two ways of looking at worth and that when you want your when you want your young men in your tribe to become pillars for the tribe, it's not just by loving them. It's by showing them how to succeed by example and then by introducing them to the dragon. It's like you have to let them feel how harsh life is. Like with chaos. your support. Not that they're all alone with you a don't dragon have, and a sword. You have to show they them. They have yeah, a no. tribe that has their back. Well, I mean, obviously there's an age to it, but at some point you want the kid to contend on his own. 100%. You're introdu- again, it's an introduction to chaos. It's not like, here you go, you're out on your own in the cold. I hope you do well. The tribe is built in that they need you. They need you to be successful. So they're introducing you to the amount of chaos that's necessary for you to start understanding how order works in the tribe. And to be able to understand, I've got to get my stuff together. And I have to be a functioning member so that the, not just you, because again, we all think very modern, like individualistically. Sure. But in the book, he's very, he's very much promoting that like individualism could kill the tribe too. And like, whereas you're, you're not even talking about someone who's just soft. You're talking about someone who isn't able to function well, we wouldn't call them a failed case. No, because there's still a work in progress too. Dave said earlier, you know, there is there there everyone still has to have that measure of growth. But if you're introduced to chaos and the small measure that you are introduced to you can't cope with, we need to work on that. We can't just leave you as is. We can in the modern world, but in the in the idealism of tribe, someone needs to come alongside of you and help you through whatever it is that's stopping you from being a functioning member of society. We're not leaving you there as a, you know, F on all your papers, you can't go to college, you're useless, just go get a small job. There's there's a growth that would still need to happen there. But also, then the tribe has to ask itself, can we devote the resources to this person? I think it's a far there's cry. There's a juxtaposition. It's a real far cry. It's hard to understand a tribal rite of initiation because we don't have their symbolism, we don't have their community, we don't have that like sense of like 
becoming a warrior like no one no one here has become a warrior except for me and i that's like that's amazing that society's gone that far and we're that peaceful that that i mean i don't consider myself any better than you guys i i but i find the value in seeing something that you want to become and then becoming it and like having no one give it to you you'll it'll never ever ever happen to you and like valuing it like some people don't value being a warrior like think of other things that you could value and and it, say like a degree like say you want to be you want to have get a doctorate it's there it's like think of that as an initiation right because we have that luxury in modern society of having many ways to succeed it's not just if you're the bum if you're the kid that can't run or has like you know at low pain tolerance like you're you're screwed in tribal society right but like now if you have a low pain tolerance you can succeed and it's amazing that modern society has that offering but like think of it like something out in front of you and and like think of it, it like your parents think it's awesome but more importantly you think it's awesome like in the tribe they the kids thought it was awesome right because it wasn't just like you will help the tribe survive it was like this is all we have and like and you can be like useful in it and like that's a great thing to think about so like they would say here's the initiation right and afterwards you are a warrior or you are whatever however they would say it and the symbolism the religious symbolism of their culture would be all intertwined in it you know whether it was a hallucinogenic initiation or or some you know walkabout or something i mean there's you can just imagine it's it it is a form of love it's like a patriotic kind of a love that your country has for you in submitting you to chaos, to the elements so that you can achieve warrior status. So like, so a doctor, like it's a, it's a far cry because you have no symbolic reference. There's nothing symbolic about being a doctor. It's great, but there's no like religious undertone. So it's, it's, it's hard to understand the, and, and warriors now too, there's no, I mean, I met some Marines that were like, they had like a symbolic undertone to their whole thing. And it was kind of cool because they were, they were uh, taken with this like deeper, deeper meaning for their becoming a warrior. But like most, most military members are not thinking of it in a symbolic way, some, you know, uh, para-religious way. But like, just imagine that, that like, it's not just like you idiot kids get out and see who survives. And if you survive, you're a man in the village. It's not, it wasn't like that. And, and, and I think now we have things that are a lot more cold than that. You know, maybe there's no physical, you know, component to it, but like, there's a lot of things now that are expectation laden, but they're, they lack that, like, that, like, you know, vitality, you know, I think also like, I don't remember if this I don't remember if this is in the book but um or if he did this in an interview but he talks about how a nomadic tribe doesn't care about wealth. I think it's in the book. I think it's like chapter 8 or yeah, 9. That's, yeah, that's so it's in there. Um that was in, that was very powerful for me because my my day job is not with my hands. It's all digital and then money just shows up in my account. Right. So like I'm at a place where that's you know, that's wealth. You know, in one form, but um, the big question is like when we look at a nomadic tribe that has no way to store wealth, like worth the way they think of it is not the way we think of it because we th- we know in a modern age, 
Like we can just keep hammering the day job or finding a better job, get a degree, increase our pay, you know, start our own companies, make more money to, to better our quality of life. But like as a nomadic tribe, that was never an option. Like, you know, you were a warrior, you were involved with the politics, you were involved with the farming or whatever, and that things were very base. So I think we also have to think about how as a tribe he, he puts value value the way we have it in the modern world versus value the way they have it in a in a tribe very different and i think maybe the some of the the reaction i had earlier is because maybe i'm confusing the concept of an ancient tribe with like the bloodthirsty capitalist machine and that connects to the the wealth piece that you're talking about that if someone you know can't make as much as the next guy you know or if someone can't produce as much as you can in your company like that they would be looked down on and they would they would internalize this view of themselves that you know they're they're not a good cog in the machine and the you know the machine's essentially just going to steamroll them because they're useless like that maybe that's where some of but but still I mean I'm not a dad yet and I think in like a decade it will be good to I you don't to I don't revisit. think you have to qualify it I think your point is valid 100%. and it, and it's why I think it's why uh, society is not a tribe anymore because we found, uh, we found the need to make space for people that aren't uh, contending with, you know, with chaos in a successful way all the time. Like, and and that grows and grows and grows. So, like the welfare state in America, you could think of it from a social social evolutionary standpoint, which is not good, right? Like, it's not good to think of welfare recipients as a you know as some kind of drag on the tribe it, it's it's and people talk like that all the time it people talk like that all the time and i think that i should say I, I think there's an aspect of that that's true right and then there's an aspect of that that it doesn't it doesn't that kind of truth doesn't matter anymore because we're more uh, more agrarian, we're more uh, uh, we're more fit. We're, we actually are capable of taking care of people that aren't wired that way. Like we don't have to leave them behind, th- so we shouldn't, right? The, and the question comes to mind though. So if people are designed to be functional, to contend with chaos, to go through initiation rites, if if some sense of um, competence is vital to a healthy human self-image. Hmm. Are we doing people a service by allowing them to be taken care of? Or, you know, like the whole hand up versus hand out thing. Hmm. I'm, I'm not by any stretch against welfare. But I do think when people say that human beings are kind of beasts of burden, that's that's a necessary part of being. If you don't have a burden to carry, at least for me, as as a human being male if i don't have a job to do that's a problem but maybe it gives it the maybe maybe the peaceful modern society gives enough space so that we can give them the kind of burden that would fit them right where like the tribal society if you didn't if you weren't able to help with either hunting or you know yeah or food prep or and you were you know, you had a bum leg or, I mean, you could imagine genetics just making you straight from the room, from the womb, like prone to be a lag on the group. Yeah. Like, the Spart- now, like the Spartans put the lame babies out in the wilderness. Yeah, to- 
we don't do that, and that's no. to our credit. But, yes, but and couldn't it's you... also our blessing that we're in a spot where we can give them a burden that's more fitting to them. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't yeah, yeah. you say that the people within the system you're describing might be just as competent, if not more competent, than the people who are deeming them useless? And it might be that the chips are stacked against them. Yeah, it might in a be different that way. their environment. Well, that's a is... different conversation. Well, you brought up <laughs> but, welfare. Side. But I mean, that's... but I'm just saying, like, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying is that you find something that's more fitting for them. They might be ten times smarter than the average person. Right. And 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 they don't have a chance because like until the the a welfare is... set setup gives them that chance. Right. So 